0: Uh, if you're visiting here today, we're glad that you're with us. We are uh, looking at the book of Romans, and uh, one of the things that we've already stated is the significance of the book of Romans. That it is the knot in the bow of the Bible. We said that if you didn't have the book of Romans, you you couldn't. The Bible would not ultimately be understandable. It is the apologetic for the Christian faith, and uh, and I said also that I'm surprised that I've not preached on it in 20 years. And the reason I'm surprised is, um, uh, is because I think we're moving further and further away from clear distinctions about what the gospel is. Now let me give you an example of that before we come to our text. Yesterday in Washington, D.C., there was an, there was an amazing event. If, uh, if you looked at the news today or you, you, you went to, to your Internet and, and, op- and opened up a page, you saw literally 100,000 people or more in uh, Washington, D.C., And uh, the reason uh, that they were there is uh, that they were gathered by uh, uh, the TV personality, Glenn Beck, who's a newscaster or a commentator on uh, Fox News. And it was impressive, the numbers that were there. I was shocked at the numbers that that were there. But I was also perplexed. I was perplexed because I was curious as... Uh, to uh, the, all the different kinds of people that had come together and why they were there. Now, it, it said that the, the purpose of it uh, was to uh, a demonstration uh, of, or a, a tribute uh, to uh, troops in America. And I think that's a great thing. And, and let me say right up front that anytime you begin to talk about stuff like this, that you, you have all kinds of opinions about about what happened yesterday... And so you have to be careful as a minister uh, because ministers aren't to be about politics. They're not to to state politics. I don't believe that. I believe politics is good. I think politics is important. I would love to see some of you run for office because I think that's a good thing. That is a calling. And at the same time, uh, I think that as I, I began to look at the group of people that were there, Uh, I was perplexed both by the kind of folks that were there and what the message was. Uh, Glenn Beck himself is a Mormon. And then there was uh, Martin Luther King's uh, niece who spoke. And uh, she is a Baptist. There were Roman Catholics that were there. Uh, There were evangelical people that were there. And there is this movement, as it were, to take America back for God. (laughs) But then I'm wondering, well, which one are we talking about here? We're talking about the God of the Mormons? The God of uh, uh, conservative Christianity where Jesus Christ is no longer preached but the law was preached? And, of course, we live in a day, an age, where you can't call anyone a heretic because if you do, that's making distinctions. And when you make distinctions, you know what? That's really not a good thing because even the idea of tolerance has moved among us as Christians. But, friends, one thing that we cannot be tolerant of is a false gospel, which Paul tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that he is an apostle of the gospel of God. There's only one gospel. And um, he later tells us uh, that this gospel in verse 2 is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, who's the son of David in the flesh and proved to be the son of God by the resurrection of the dead. And it is this gospel, this Jesus Christ, that we must preach. And then I began to wonder what Paul would do with a crowd of 300,000 people or 100,000, however many people were there. And I wondered if Paul would be perplexed that, well, uh, uh, are we nullifying the gospel that I preached 2,000 years ago? And are we beginning to elevate America as though it is ultimately the kingdom of God and the final destination? Friends, you're going to leave America one day. You're not going to be here one day. And for some of you, you begin to focus on family You begin to focus on education. You begin to focus on all the comforts of this life, and all those things are fine and good. But let me tell you, parents, that I got an article from John Larson, who was up here, our our assistant pastor. And, uh, And the article pretty much said that if you talk to kids out of evangelical homes, they're deist. And they really believe that the purpose of God in their life is to make them happy, not to repent of their sin. So there's no hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so we come to our text today where Paul clearly lays it out. And in the the moments that we have, uh, I want to make sure we do that. Because some of you need to understand the gospel according to Jesus Christ. Not one of the gospels that's out there. Little Jig. Uh, So, just two verses. Verse 16 and 17 is printed there in your bulletin. If you're visiting, we believe this is the inerrant word of God. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the scriptures that reveal the good news of the gospel. Pray for any who are here that have never heard the clarion call of the gospel, fuzzy about the gospel, Lord, that they would see that their only hope is in the work of Christ and what he has accomplished. Father, for us uh, who do know you, Lord, uh, we we tend to move away from the gospel, and we tend to look at our own righteousness and our standing before you based on something we did this week rather than what happened 2,000 years ago. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit, for it's not powerful without him, and so we pray for his presence now through the preaching of the word and the sacraments and the ordination of these men. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Uh, I learned quickly my first week at college when I went to Furman University that I was, not, uh, I was ill-prepared academically. <laughs> uh, it was in my English 101 class. And uh, we were asked by the professor, I'll never forget, he was a really nice guy. Uh, but he asked us to pick any subject that we wanted to, to speak on or write on and just write, write a, a short paper on, on that subject. And uh, I was a new convert. I had just come to know Jesus Christ. I was excited about what all the implications of that were. So you know what I wrote my short paper on? The uniqueness of Christianity. I think I spelled uniqueness wrong in the title, actually. <laughs> Didn't have spell check back then. I was, I was already you know, in trouble. But, so anyhow, uh, so uh, a couple of days later we get our papers back. And we're to, uh, sh- to, to kind of critique our papers with the person that was next to you. Well, there's this cute girl next to me. And, and I was looking forward to getting my A back. And uh, so right next, so I got my paper back. And right next to the title, Uniqueness of Christianity, it had this letter by it. It was an F. So I was not too excited about sharing uh, my paper with her. And, uh, but I looked at her paper, and she had a big fat A plus by hers. And it was on... My Weekend at the Theta Party. <laughs> and I thought, how can this be? Uh, this is, uh, there's no content here. Uh, there's, this is just fluff. And then, of course, I learned two things. Uh, number one, it was a course on grammar. And hers was much better than mine. And then secondly, I also learned what a theme statement was. Well, this morning uh, we look at the ultimate theme statement. In the ultimate book of the Bible, it is ultimately making very clear what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And, and so I've learned about theme statements over the years. As a matter of fact, every Sunday I'm supposed to give you one, so let me give you one that uh, a preacher is called Propositions. And uh, here's what I want us to see this morning from our theme statement, and that is this. And please listen. If you were to know the power of the gospel that Paul speaks of, the power of Jesus Christ in in a transforming way, then it's very important that you understand that your greatest need this morning is a righteousness that you don't have. That's your greatest need. And it is a righteousness that comes from God Now let me tell you why I was bothered uh, by that meeting yesterday, the rally. It came across as though what it means to be a Christian and a God-fearing person is that we're the good people. We're the God-fearing people. And what we need to do is we need to take America back from all those bad people. Those people who are ruining America. And the fact of the matter is, um, the idea is that we, as though we have some form of righteousness that other people don't have. That we're the good people and they're the bad people. And so our righteousness is a righteousness that is uh, based on being an American. We believe in God and country and family and family values and all those things. And again, I'm not saying that there weren't Christians there. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. But I'm just wondering how a non-Christian who might be here at Redeemer this morning would look at something like that. Well, friends, let me tell you that what we believe at Redeemer and what we believe that the Scriptures teaches is what Romans 3 verse 21 ultimately teaches and that is after Paul has laid the case that there's none righteous, no, not one, he says, But now there is a righteousness from God. It is a foreign righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior of sinners. I'm going to make a couple of points here, but I need to, to make it applicable. I need to ask you a question. How important is righteousness to you? Uh, Jesus Christ himself said this on the Sermon on the Mount. The very first thing that he said are three negatives and then a positive. First negative, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. More than why? Because you don't have a righteousness. For you shall be comforted. Then he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And what is a meek person? A meek person is once God has done his work in you and somebody says something bad about you, you don't get mad about it. You say, is that all? You don't know the half of it. But then he comes and he says, Okay, now you're ready for this statement in the beatitude. Blessed are you if you hunger... And thirst for righteousness. And then he makes this great promise that Paul's going to make in our text. He says, You shall be filled. And the verb tense that he uses there is a present partisan. What do you hunger and thirst for? What's important to you? Redeemer? Uh, a, A good church? Good family? Do you hunger and thirst uh, for good reputation then? Oh, well, you're respected as somebody in the church or somebody that's in the in the community. Or you hunger and thirst, uh, your righteousness is your money. And when I say that, I don't mean that money brings righteousness. But you know what righteous really means? You have a right standing. You have a right standing. That's what it means. And you know what? You have a right standing because you have money. And that's what... Brings significance in that, your, your life. That's what makes you uh, right standing with other people. But you see, the righteousness that God talks about, the most important righteousness, is that you this morning have a right standing before a God who is holy and just and righteous and true. Is that what you hunger for? In fact, I would suggest that those who know Jesus Christ for a long, long time, the more they're growing in awareness of their gratitude that Christ is their righteousness. So let's uh, see a couple of things before we come to the Lord's table about this. In these two verses, we hit a couple of them last week, so I'll be brief with these. But first, Paul says um, that he is not ashamed of this gospel. He's not ashamed of this gospel that brings us righteousness of God. Now, why would he bring that up? We talked about it last week. Why would he talk about not being ashamed? Well, because, you see, if the gospel is rightly preached, far be it that it unites believers, but it certainly divides the moral from the immoral, the moralist from the Christian, the bad person from the Christian. Because, you see, uh, the, the reason uh, it is offensive, as we said last week, is because it divides because it, it's news. It's not, it's not advice. It's not gospel of advice that, hey, these are the things you need to do. That is what religion is about. That is what secular psychology is about. That is why we go to counselors. They, they, they give advice about what you're to do. But let me tell you the problem with that, okay? If you are here today and you're not a Christian and you've never really understood your need for a righteousness this foreign to yourself, whatever advice somebody gives you, you're not going to keep anyway, right? You get good advice from your pastor. I could give you four reasons, four ways to love your wife and you break every one of them. Yeah, y'all remember the, the, the uh, movement, the, the promise keepers? Y'all remember? I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I think it was fine. But a bunch of guys got together in, in these uh, stadiums, literally forty or 50,000 of them, and they would, uh, they would hear these talks. Uh, uh, but one of the things that they would make were, were seven promises of a promise keeper that they would vow to keep. Well, the problem with that is, and probably the reason the movement died out is everybody figured out, you know what? I can't keep those promises. But you see, the gospel is good news, it's not good advice. And what is the news? That God has done something. Uh, when we speak of uh, the the angel, the angel, the proclaimer, he simply comes and he makes proclamation of something that's already happened. He's a herald, and what is Paul heralding? Good news, not bad news. The bad news is if God does nothing. The good news is that God has done something in Jesus Christ. And therefore it is offensive to people who don't understand that it's not advice but news. Because you know why it's offensive? Well, because the gospel says you can't help yourself, okay? You can't make yourself get better if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you cannot make yourself get better. You can try to clean up the outside of the cup and, and everybody else thinks you're great, but just go ask your wife or your spouse or your children if they think you're great. Because what they see is what Jesus saw with the Pharisees, that they're washed up on the outside, but on the inside they are like dead man's bones. They're like rotten stink. That's what Jesus says about us. And that's why he says you need something other than a gospel with a little g... But you need the gospel with a good big G, which is good news. That God has something done something on your behalf. Now, why is that offensive? Well, it's offensive to several kinds of people. Uh, one is conser- it's offensive to conservative people, okay? And what I've discovered over the years is I've preached a lot of Presbyterian churches, and I've been around, I've sat down and had discussions with people all over the South is uh, when I start talking to them, uh, they have a different gospel than what I, I believe is the gospel. Case in point is, uh, is uh, Tim Keller tells a story where, uh, when he was a pastor in Virginia, uh, there was a trailer park back out behind the church. And so he went in there, uh, and he, he's now a great preacher to, to, in New York City. But he was faithful back then in Virginia and he would, go to the, he would go to the trailer park and share the gospel. And so he went to this one woman who uh, was in absolute despair uh, because of the life that she had lived, that had landed her in a trailer, because of the way she dealt with her finances, because of drugs, because of her sexual immorality. And so Tim Keller begins to explain to her the gospel is not about you trying to make up for what you've done, right? Because I'm telling okay, so you decide, let me, just, just so you decide that you're going to make up for what you've done and you're 28 years old. You're going to make up for it. Now you're going to get your act together. Well, what about all those people you've already destroyed? What about Hope? That was her name. He said it was interesting. She was in despair, but her name was Hope. Uh, what is she to do about maybe the children that, 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 uh, that she messed up? because she was doing drugs and so Tim Keller says no the gospel's not good advice I'm not here to give you advice and ask to get your act together I'm here to tell you that God has done something 2,000 years in Jesus Christ and that if by faith you simply look to him all of your sin is placed on him and all of his righteousness and everything that he did is credited to your account and the lights went on she said that can't be true he said, well, it's because it's not advice, it's news, it's what's happened. And all you have to do is look to Jesus Christ by faith. And we're going to talk about what I mean by that in a moment, in case you're fuzzy about faith. And then, and then it's as though heaven's gates opened up to her. She picks up the phone and she calls her sister, who was a church member, who had four children. And uh, their children had all graduated from college and their kids went to Christian schools and, and she was an outstanding uh, member of her church. And when she told her sister uh, that, her sister said, well, whatever that pastor told you is a lie because it can't be that free. And see, the gospel was screwing up the power structures in that family because her whole identity was, I'm the good sister and you're the bad one. And her whole righteousness was that uh, she was a good church member. And you are the one that is the bad person. But you see, that's why people that are conservative... And you might be that way this morning. You know, Again, you, you might really want to be a good Christian. Uh, and you're trying to be a good Christian, but you hate this idea of the gospel really being free. But you see, it's free. And that's offensive to people who try to be good. But it's also offensive to people who uh, are more, uh, say, let's just say progressive, more liberal people. And the reason it's offensive to them is because I was a chaplain for a long time with a bunch of liberal theologians at Vanderbilt, and they hate it. They love p- things being vague. <laughs> you know, so you get together and you discuss the meaning of God, and He's the ground of being, and da 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 da. But then you come in there with the gospel and you go, uh, you, know, you know, all that stuff's not right. <laughs> And it's offensive. You know why? Because people, if you're like a progressive person, you like things to be vague so you can continue to live the way you want to versus the clarity of the gospel that calls us to repentance. One uh, when, uh, when, uh, when, uh, week we were asked uh, to do a, a panel discussion on why students come to religious people for counseling. Why? why, why, Because there were plenty plenty of secular counselors at Vanderbilt. So why would they come to a religious person? And uh, so I did my homework. I looked up the word counselor. Okay, in the the Greek and the Hebrew and Aramaic. You know what it means? It means to advise. That's what counsel means, that that, you've you've obviously got something to give to them. Well, when we went to this uh, panel discussion, uh, all the other chaplains were saying, well, they come to us to help them on their faith journey. And uh, so it's pretty nebulous, right? You come, and, and, and so when it came to me, I said, well, look, you know, that's not what the word means. The word means to advise. And so the reason they actually come to us is because they think we're heralds. They think that we know something about God that they don't know. And boy, you could have split that room in half. You could have cut it with a knife. Why? Because you see, the clarity of the gospel is always offensive. Because it calls a commitment. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. But notice also that he says that he's not ashamed of it because he said it is powerful. It is the gospel that's powerful unto salvation. You see, it's able to say. Good advice doesn't save you. Okay, it just makes it worse. It just makes you realize how much you're sinking. I mean, how many articles have you read in magazines and go, "Yeah, okay, that's great. That's how you or, that's how you organize your house, <laughs> or that's how you do this, or that's how you do it." And you try it, and you go, "Man, I hate doing this. This is just not me. I need to read another another article on how to manage." <laughs> Uh, life in some other way. But you see, uh, advice is not powerful because it only oppresses. But that's what the law of God does. God gave ten commandments so that your sin might become exceedingly sinful. The reason God gave ten more commandments is because Adam already broke the commandment and we're already dead in Adam. We're already sinned in Adam. It's called original sin. So why did God give ten more later and he t- Paul say, says later in Romans 7 that we'll look at, he said it's so that sin might become exceedingly sinful. And when it becomes exceedingly sinful to you, then the work of the gospel is becoming powerful because you're beginning to understand that you are hopeless. Yesterday we had an inquiries class. To inquire about what Redeemer believes. And of course, one of the first things we want to make sure they understand is that we believe the gospel. And so we go to Galatians chapter 3, I mean, chapter 1, verse 3. And it, it speaks to us of Christ who has come and rescued us from this present generation. Rescue. Nothing you do. He didn't come over here to help you out. And so then I asked uh, ask the, the group if they'd ever. Uh, had to be rescued, and several raised their hand, and every one of them was because they were drowning. Now, I could identify that, because I almost drowned one time, and I know I've told the story, but I was uh, uh, at a church camp before I was a Christian. I was going to swim across the lake, impress the girls. Uh, they were out there on the deck, and there was a buoy, and I figured if I, if I, you know, if I got tired, I'd just grab that buoy and act like I was, you know, swimming with and uh, so, man, I started getting tired. I was him halfway across that lake. And guess what? I grabbed that buoy, and, and it wasn't attached to the dock. So I had a dilemma, like either to be an absolute fool and scream and yell, I'm drowning, or to try to, you know, be cool enough to see if I could somehow manage to get to the other deck. Well, fortunately, my brother Bob was on the deck, and he had a boat by the, by the uh, deck out there. And so I said, hey, Bob. Man, I'm kind of tired. Would you come get me? He said, Ah, oh, you can make it out here. And uh, so I said, Well, I, no, no, Bob, really. I really need you to come. I'm really tired. And he wasn't coming out there. <laughs> because he thought I needed help. He didn't think I needed to be saved. But let me tell you what. When I knew I wasn't going to make it and I knew I was going to drown, I didn't care who was on that deck. I just wanted to be on that deck or the dock and And uh, and so I started saying a number of choice words there at the church camp. And my brother clued in the fact that I was in trouble, you see. I was drowning. And I'm telling you, he got to me right before I went down. I was going to sink about 30 feet at the bottom of a pond. Now you see, until you get to a point that you need to be rescued by God, you will never know God. Until the weight of your sin begins to sink you down, You begin to realize that my issue is not I need more money or I need a better relationship with my spouse or I need this or I need that. You need to be saved. And I know that's not a popular word today. Matter of fact, I've had people say, hey, don't say you need to be saved. I'm like, well, that's what the Bible says. You need to be saved. And Paul says it's a power to save. But then notice he also tells us why it's a powerful gospel to save. Because he says in verse 17, he tells you what the substance of it is and how you're saved. He says, but now there is a righteousness from God that is revealed. What do you need to be saved from? Let me tell you what you need to be saved from. If uh, you don't understand this, it's because you have a low view of God, but God is an infinite judge. And one day you're going to stand before him. And trust me, you'll give an account for how you live this week. You're going to give an account for the lies you told, the tests you cheated on as a student already, the sexual immorality, the pornography, all these things that are wonderful traits that come out of human beings, right? Even the redeemed ones. But you see, God in his grace, though, understands our plight and the good news is that he sends a righteousness that we need. And when Christ comes, he doesn't just come and die as a baby because all you needed is somebody a substitute, right? Like, like like some calf that you would kill in the Old Testament. So if all you needed was death, then, I would, then why did he have to live for 33 years? Because, you see... He had to establish our our righteousness for us that as the perfect second Adam that he would love God and he would love people and for 33 years, he lives that. So he has earned a righteousness but the way it comes from God to us is not only that Jesus came as the son of God but somebody had to pay. And what does he do? He goes to the cross, he takes our sin upon himself Our sin is imputed to him, laid upon his charge, and the wages of sin is death. And Christ became powerless in that he took upon himself our sin. But in exchange for that, God demands perfection for us to go to heaven. Anybody perfect here? But Jesus Christ, what what is God going to do with all this righteousness, this loving God and loving people for 33 years? He credits that to our account. And so now, as Martin Luther said, when I understood that, it was as though heaven's gates opened up. And I was declared righteous. One last thing about this. And this is awesome. I I was asking the people yesterday, I said, now, if you really believe that every sin you've ever committed, every will commit, it's already been paid for, it's imputed to Jesus Christ, God has adopted you in Jesus Christ, given you the Holy Spirit, Imputed the work of Christ to you and made you alive, would that make your day better? Let me ask y'all that. Would that make your day better? Huh? I look, I and there are all kinds of personalities that are here. Some people have a tender conscience, some don't, some some wherever you come, males, females, tall, skinny, short, bald headed. But but the fact is, a person who begins to understand that everything has been paid for, that every you're free, you're absolutely free. It is a power that begins to transform your life. And I know a lot of you are a lot deeper in the hole. And I know it's hard to believe this, but it's true. God loves his people. But then one last thing, and, I, and I'm done. Uh, because I want you to know how do you appropriate this. It's interesting. Who does he say it's for? He says it is for those who believe. And that Greek word there is paistua, which means a personal response to what God has done. Okay, but you need to understand this. He says it is a righteousness, of verse 17, that's from faith to faith. In other words, it's always been a righteousness that comes through the preaching of the word, and faith comes in the context of the preaching of the word. Now, what do I mean by that? And I'll be done. It doesn't mean that faith is something you do to gain this foreign righteousness from God. Faith comes with the preaching of the gospel. It comes with the righteousness of God. In other words, faith is from God to embrace all the benefits of Christ, okay? And it's through the preaching of the word That God has ordained that faith comes through that. In other words, faith is not independent and that you decide to believe it or not. That's called a fideism. Everybody has faith, but the only one that matters is the one that comes from God. Let me conclude with this uh, illustration. There's a a doctor. uh, uh, Suppose there's this doctor. That's the way I've kind of conjured it up in my head. And and he's he's the doctor who's the only one that knows about how to cure a particular disease. uh, But he has to have this instrument that he invented. He's the only one that knows how to work it. And so somebody comes to him and says, Hey, I've got this uh, incurable disease. He says, Ah, you've come to the right doctor. There it is. I know what that disease is, and I've got a machine that will cure that disease. Uh, and, you know, I'm on vacation. When I come in, you've got plenty of time, you'll be all right. And so he comes uh, from vacation. The patient's about to die, but he's not worried about it because he knows how to solve that problem. And uh, But he comes into the operating room. And when he does, there's the patient. He's not worried. He knows everything there needs to be done to solve that patient's problem. But you see, he, he gets there, and his instrument is broken. And the patient dies. And you see... A lot of us are kind of like the doctor without the gift, without the, the, the instrument of faith. We know everything the earth knows about God and Jesus and what needs to be done to be saved. But you've never received the instrument. It's all intellectual. But you see, with the righteousness of God and His electing grace, He gives you the gift of faith to embrace all the benefits that are in Jesus Christ. So as we come to the Lord's table, let me ask you, are you born again? Are you saved? Are you resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? If you are, then there's a reason to be joyful. On the other hand, if you're a Christian and you believe all these things and you really are saved, but you struggle with this, it doesn't mean you're not. It just means that you need to ask God, God, would you give me the grace to appropriate the work of Christ on my behalf? And then, if you're not a believer today, let me ask you this. What is your righteousness? What makes your life meaningful? Is it Christ in his resurrection, or is it something else? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, come to, to now to the Lord's table. We ask that you would bless uh, the sacraments.